0: Ed takes Kathy to the premiere in his decently convertible. It begins to rain, and he can't raise the top. They hurry inside, and Chris introduces Ed, who says that this film is for Bella. The movie begins, and Ed whispers to himself, This is the one. This is the one I'll be remembered for. This is those wonderful people out there in the dark. I'm David Jansen. Scary Season Doubleheader, Part 2, Episode 13, Ed Wood Haven't you heard of the suspension of disbelief? We're in the second part of Scary Season here on the pod, and we're diving into one of the wittier, more tender portraits ever created of a person who wasn't successful. And I don't mean like Van Gogh, as in never sold a picture before death and then esteemed as a genius later... I'm talking about an artist who's been recognized as the director of possibly the worst film ever made. An artist who grounded out in the most basic and ignominious fashion possible during life. I'm talking about Edward D. Wood Jr. It's the film Ed Wood, lovingly directed by Tim Burton and produced by Burton and Denise Novi for Disney's Touchstone Pictures in 1994. It's a semi, very semi, Biography of Edward D. Wood Jr., a Burton lesson in believing in yourself and continuing in the face of constant headwinds. And it's atmospheric and has a fun, resonant vibe for the scary season. It fits like a glove with House on Haunted Hill, last week's pod. Neither are especially scary, but they share uncanny parallels as well as exemplifying fulfillment of the creative experience. Even if what you create isn't especially good, Where did this project come from? While still USC film school students, Larry Karaszewski and Scott Alexander played with the idea of writing an Ed Wood biofilm. The duo best known for screenplays of movies about the almost famous, such as The People vs. Larry Flint, Man in the Moon, about unusual comic Andy Kaufman, Autofocus, about the life and death of actor Bob Crane, and Big Eyes, also with Tim Burton. Prior to this string, and with the cred of two solid and profitable films behind them in Hollywood, the so-so Problem Child and the terrible Problem Child 2, they put together a treatment on a wood biopic and ran it past USC classmate and director Michael Lehman, who ran it past Denise DeNovi, with whom Lehman had worked before. DeNovi had produced Edward Scissorhands, multi-million dollar grossing Batman Returns, and The Night Before Christmas, all in conjunction with Burton. Burton also liked the idea, and had warm feelings for the story, due to his own history. So they all pitched it to Columbia, and ended up with a deal. Lehman had to bow out of directing, due to scheduling conflicts, and Burton picked up the reins. Burton, quite rightly, believed the film needed to be shot in black and white, to reflect the mood and time frame. Columbia blanched, and the film went into the dreaded Hollywood turnaround cycle, with DeNovi and Burton working with Disney's adult label, Touchstone, for a final deal, with a budget of $18 million, which Disney felt was too small to hurt them much. Okay. So, Tim Burton now has in his hands what I feel is one of the most personal and tender films of his career. A California kid who grew up in Burbank, Burton was into art, animation, and watching film. He attended the California Institute of Arts and his early animation work landed him various roles at Disney. He personally created a short animated film, Vincent, based on his poem and the imaginings of a child that he's Vincent Price, and through a friendship that developed with Price, narrated by Price. This led to various animated movies and TV work, with his big live-action film break coming in Beetlejuice, with Gina Davis, Alec Baldwin, and Michael Keaton. The film went on to make $75 million, and Burton was on his way in, for the most part, style-driven film and blockbusters such as Batman, a cajillion dollars into the bank for that one, beginning his long association with Johnny Depp and musing Vincent Price once again in Edward Scissorhands, producing The Nightmare Before Christmas, a delightful stop-action film that spans two holidays, Mars Attacks, Sleepy Hollow, Sweeney Todd, And on and on. Ed Wood struck a chord with Burton. Wood's friendship and acting relationship with Bella Lugosi echoing for Burton his feelings for Vincent Price. It's a character-driven film, rather than style or action-driven, and thus more personal than most of his better-known work of the time period. Burton read Nightmare of Ecstasy, the book by Rudolph Gray used as the basis for the screenplay. He loved that Wood felt he was making films in the same manner as his hero, Orson Welles, and wearing the same multiple cinematic hats as Welles, writing, directing, producing, and acting in his creations, as we shall see, in fact, and in fiction. Burton used Stefan Zopsky as the cinematographer, a German-Ukrainian and many-time collaborator who worked with him on Edward Scissorhands and Batman Returns. The use of black and white to film Wood was very appropriate, and Stefan's work is brilliant and lustrous, while ground in reality, a plus for a story with so many fanciful and unlikely elements. Stefan received the Best Cinematography Award for Wood from the National Society of Film Critics. Burton employed another longtime confidant, Chris Lebenzon, as editor. He'd worked on blockbusters like Top Gun, Days of Thunder, And with Burton on Batman Returns, The Nightmare Before Christmas, Mars Attacks, Sleepy Hollow, and onwards. The film moves beautifully due to his work, and you feel as though it's being revealed to you rather than sitting through a performance. The final superlative creative element was the score, overseen by Howard Shore rather than one of Burton's regulars, Danny Elfman, after the latter had a falling out with Burton around the time of Batman Returns. Shore's score is beautiful complementing all the action, with the Ed Wood theme incredibly evocative of the sci-fi horror feel, as is the more tender music, the rendition of the swan theme from Swan Lake Act II and Elysium, both signaling Bella's presence, or Ed and Kathy, a tender elegy on love, and some cast for a mere $18 million film. Burton had a lot of sway by this time in Hollywood, and he attracted great actors, whether through reputation or personal relationships. Playing Edward D. Wood Jr. is Johnny Depp, a longtime ally of Burton from Edward Scissorhands to nearly the present day. I'm not going to get into Depp's present day, okay? Depp had become known through small roles in films like A Nightmare on Elm Street, and then the TV series 21 Jump Street, then moving into memorable characterizations in independent films. The most memorable characterization came about through the triumph of cross-licensing and marketing with his, dare I say it, Keith Richards-like take on a pirate, Captain Jack Sparrow. In Disney's Disneyland ride comes to the screen, Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl, which was a fun and wonderful film, which I saw with my children something like 12 times. $654 million later, an unlikely event, a sequel. Then another sequel, then another, then-ah, never mind. Depp could write his own ticket and to his credit continue to work in interesting films with and without Burton, such as Once Upon a Time in Mexico, Finding Neverland, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Sweeney Todd and The Rum Diary. In Wood, Depp brings tremendous energy to the character of Ed Wood and his voice mannerisms are fun and idiosyncratic. He brings hope and encouragement just by speaking, capturing Wood's enthusiasm, as well as the counterpoint of his lows. He just smashes through the film. I love his work here. He's matched by a veteran of acting, someone who paddled along below the surface of stardom for years, only to hit the heights near the end of his career, Martin Landau. If you're my age, you may remember Landau from the 50s and 60s as a villain's villain in North by Northwest, and then The Master of All Forms of Disguise on the long-running TV version of Mission Impossible. Then Years of TV, another series, Space 1999, appearing in dreck like The Harlem Globetrotters on Gilligan's Island. Remember that one? Teaching acting theory, and finally, coming off somewhat of the junk heap to be nominated for the supporting Oscar for Tucker, The Man in His Dream, a film by Coppola. Then another supporting nod for Woody Allen's Crimes and Misdemeanors. By the time he played Bela Lugosi for Wood, he was in full-scale career resurgence. The old acting coach knew he needed to not go over the top with his characterization of Lugosi, which would have been easy. He struck a perfect chord, with enough of an accent and imperiousness to easily pass and succeed as the Karloff-hating, at least in the film, Hungarian, Landau ended by winning the Best Supporting Actor Oscar, finally, for his performance in Ed Wood. The actor, who had almost been forgotten by Hollywood, perfectly played the actor who was consigned to memory by Hollywood. One more standout. Bill Murray as Bunny Breckenridge is amazing. Like his work in Tootsie, Murray had a small part that perfectly fits the snide side of his acting, and that's a good thing. He maturely presents Breckinridge sympathetically and is memorable as Wood's foil and friend. And if you've never seen the actual Plan 9 from Outer Space and Breckinridge's performance, please do, if only to compare to how in the groove Murray is in his role. He's understated and funny, helping to drive the good-natured humor, but also the goofiness of the film's story. Wood is packed with other wonderful actors and performances, With Sarah Jessica Parker, simplistic and a bit shrewish as Wood's girlfriend and initial leading lady, lovely, lovely, lovely Dolores Fuller. More on that later. Patricia Arquette is quiet and evocative as Wood's later girlfriend and wife, Kathy. Lisa Marie, at the time Burton's significant other, plays the incredible character, Vampyra. Yes, she actually existed. More on that later. Mike Starr yells and gets mad convincingly as George Weiss, the cut-rate producer of exploitation films who helped Wood to bootstrap some of his C-movie fare. Jeffrey Jones is dead on and gives the strange intro to the film as the amazing Criswell. Yes, he actually existed, which mimics the strange intro and outro the actual Criswell gave in Plan 9 from Outer Space. And Landau's daughter, Julie Landau, plays Wood's later leading lady and supposed backer, lovely, lovely, lovely Loretta King. Spoilers ahead, the film opens on a coffin from which a very live Criswell, whom Ed calls Kriz for much of the film, delivering a variation of the strange intro from Plan 9. The credits roll, and we end with a somewhat obvious model of the darkened and rainy Hollywood Hills, and sweep into the entrance of a small, run-down theater. There, Ed and his friends, and cast, are opening his play, Casual Company, a sampling of his service in World War II. There are about six people in the audience, and the roof is dripping rain into buckets. The cast gathers for the early morning papers, and they read the reviews with tremendous disappointment. Ed's girlfriend, Dolores, reads and wonders, Do I really have a face like a horse? Ed tries to buck everyone up by exclaiming the critics like the soldiers' costumes and that they're doing important work. Bunny comments, Rave of the Century. Later, unable to sleep, Ed wonders to Dolores whether he just doesn't have it, noting his hero Orson Welles put together Citizen Kane at age 26. Dolores tries to encourage him and then wonders why some of her clothes are disappearing, Ed saying nothing. Ed returns to his day job as a property boy at a studio. As he delivers property he stops to chat with an old editor who shows him reels of stock footage, Ed imagining how he could use it all to construct a terrific film. As he delivers a plant to an office he sees Variety has a squib that George Weiss's company, Screen Classics, is going to make the Christine Jorgensen story, a film about the fifties landmark of Jorgensen going to Denmark to undergo gender reassignment surgery. Ed thinks this is his chance to direct, and goes to see the always angry Weiss. He's now angry that Variety spilled the beans, and Jorgensen is refusing to cooperate. Weiss doesn't see how Ed's small theater experience can help when he needs someone who can put together his Grindhouse film in record time. Ed reveals he enjoys wearing women's clothes, as his mother used to dress him that way growing up and then he knows what it's like to live with a secret. Weiss is unconvinced, even with this startling confession. Ed drowns his sorrows in a bar and then sadly walks L.A. when he chances on a mortuary and its showroom. There he glimpses Bella Lugosi, seemingly immobile, in an open coffin. Lugosi snaps open his eyes and says that the merchandise is quite shoddy. Ed approaches him and tells him he's a big fan. Lugosi is off on a long, exhausting tour of the play Dracula and is planning on dying soon, thus the coffin. He can't find his bus transfer, so Ed gives him a ride in his constantly overheating and dieseling car to Lugosi's small home in Baldwin Hills. Lugosi talks about being washed up, and they compare notes on horror films. The films of Universal Studios, which Lugosi had so famously played in, were mythic. Who could believe in the giant bugs, giant spiders, giant grasshoppers so popular in 50s sci-fi and horror, reflecting the anxiousness of the atomic era? They part as friends. Ed decides to approach Weiss again, with the idea that he can provide a major star for the proposed film, now called I Changed My Sex, if he's allowed to direct. Legosi. Weiss asks whether Legosi is still alive, then gives up and furnishes Ed a short time frame and small budget. Ed is overjoyed and works on the script, shifting the focus to Transvestites and the title to Glen or Glenda. He implores Bunny to find him transvestites to act in the film, and gives Lugosi the good news about his role and his fee, as Lugosi is in desperate financial straits. Lugosi is dubious about the subject, but Ed convinces him that he'll be like the god watching over the entire scenario, Ah, so he pulls the strings. Ed has Dolores read the script, alone in their bedroom, thus learning about Ed's predilection as she opens the door to find him in her clothes. She's leery, but he talks her into remaining in the film. Ed and the film crew proceed to film the script at breakneck speeds with single takes the rule and no application for permits to use public property. With Glenn in the can, Ed visits Warner Brothers and talks with Mr. Feldman, describing his forthcoming work such as Dr. Acula and The Ghoul Goes West, none of which connects with Feldman until he mentions Bride of the Atom. Atomic Age stuff, huh? I like it. Feldman screens the footage Ed has left with him and tries to puzzle out the typical Ed Wood film of bad continuity, strange use of stock footage, and poor acting. He laughs uproariously, and says it must be a prank from Wild Bill Wellman, an actual director famed for Wings, The Public Enemy, Bo Jest, and the Oxbow Incident. Ed, Dolores, and Bunny go to the wrestling matches, and Bunny talks loudly about his desire to have gender reassignment surgery in Mexico, inspired by Glen or Glenda. Ed sees the wrestler Tor Johnson and envisions him playing a monster on film. He speaks with Tor and tells him he's perfect for Bride of the Atom but when Ed calls Feldman, he tells him his examples were the worst film he ever saw. Dolores encourages Ed to think of other ways to finance Bride. He starts calling around to possible backers. One of these asks whether Bella can appear on live TV in a few days. Bella is worried about his dialogue and muffs the work. After the embarrassment, Ed and Bella meet Criswell, who lets them know the whole thing in show business is Faldi-Roll and Razzle-Dazzle. Chris works with Ed and his crew to attract backers at a party. They don't attract a single dollar. In a bar, Ed overhears Loretta King, who seems to be rich. He asks her to invest, and she does, in exchanging for taking the lead role away from Dolores. Dolores responds by braining Ed with a pan. Dolores has to content herself with playing the file clerk. Ed's team starts to film Bride and they move through the scenes rapidly. 20, 30 scenes a day. They arrive at a crucial scene and the owner of the studio demands his money. Ed duns Loretta for the 60k beyond the $300 she's already given him. But 300 was all the money she had. They're locked out. They go back to having parties to attract actors, at which Ed meets Vampira. She's uninterested in becoming part of the party/film slash film, as she is riding high on LA TV at the time. Seeing this exchange, the backers panic and exit. Ed is down to describing the film to McCoy, a somewhat untidy meat processor, who gives the money in exchange for a new ending and a part for his son. The crew has to steal a motorized octopus for one of the scenes, with Bella having to wrestle with the fake octopus in a small pond to match the stock footage. Bella ruminates on how he had the chance to star in Frankenstein, but passed. He good-naturedly wrestles with the octopus in the freezing water. Ed writes Bella a final, special speech for the film, which Bella finds very touching. At the rap party, Bunny tells Tor about how his Mexico plants tragically fell through. Disgusted by the whole scene and vibe, Dolores breaks up with Ed at the rap party after he does a transvestite vamp dance. Ed calls up Vampira for a date, but she refuses telling him to let her know when Bride opens. Bella calls Ed again, caught up in his addiction and his financial distress. He threatens to commit suicide and suggests he can kill Ed as well, that they'll be happy in the afterlife. Ed talks him into continuing and works with him to check into rehab. Ed meets a new friend, Kathy, who is in the waiting room at the same hospital as Bella. Reporters learn of Bella's rehab and surround him for pictures and quotes, like vermin. Bella contends there's no bad press and envisions a comeback. Ed and Kathy go to a carnival, and Ed describes his all-American childhood and attraction to comics and pulp magazines. He confesses to Kathy about his cross-dressing, as he doesn't want it to interfere with their relationship. Kathy thinks carefully, then is accepting. The doctors at the hospital notes Bella's benefits have run out, and he needs to leave the hospital. Ed talks him into this, though Bella still feels weak. He asks Ed when they'll be able to make another picture. Ed takes some silent footage of Bella at the exterior of his home to lull him into looking forward to the next film. Ed's crew, Kathy, and Vampyra go to the premiere of the film, now known as Bride of the Monster. With a riot breaking out in the theater and the crew barely escaping in a taxi, Kathy stops. Bella notes, Now that was a premiere. Bella walks with Ed and says it's been a good time, reciting from memory the special words Ed wrote for him for Bride. Ed and Kathy are spending time in his apartment. When he receives a call, Bella has passed away. Ed, Kathy, Vampira, and Ed's crew attend Bella's small funeral service, with Bella at last closed in a coffin and buried in his cape from Dracula. Ed plays the silent footage he had taken of Bella over and over in a projection room. The landlord and a leader of the Baptist Church of Hollywood comes to let Ed know he's bounced a rent check. Well, Ed writes him another bad check, the Baptist talks about doing a series of movies on the Apostles. They have enough for only one movie, though. Ed talks him into his new idea, Grave Robbers from Outer Space, in order to reap the profits to make the multiple movies on the Apostles. Ed has the footage of Bella to make the film a blockbuster success. From this acorn will grow a great oak. Vampira is fired from her show, and Ed offers her a part in the movie, which Vampyra requests be played mute so she isn't noticed. Ed meets Kathy's chiropractor, Dr. Tom, who Ed employs to double as Bella. The Baptist Church wants to baptize the crew so they put up with a dunking in a swimming pool by the pastor. The Baptists interfere left and right with Ed's vision of the film, including suggesting a title change to Plan 9 from Outer Space. Huh! They object to the problems of continuity and poor effects. Wood explodes. Haven't you heard of the suspension of disbelief? Ed becomes so frustrated that he goes into his dressing room, changes into women's clothes to calm down, and emerges to the Baptist's disgust and horror. Ed becomes enraged and blows up, taking a taxi to the famous Hollywood bar, Musso and Frank. Still in women's clothes, Ed spots his hero in the dark. It's Orson Welles! Ed tells him he's a big fan and a young director as well. Welles talks about his problems. Financing on films he's engaged in is haphazard, and Universal has hired him to act and direct in a thriller but they want Charlton Heston to play a Mexican. This is the incomparable touch of evil. In fact, Heston wouldn't do the film unless they hired Wells. Ed sympathizes and asks if it's worth it. Wells speaks the words the film has been leading to. Visions are worth fighting for. Why spend your life making someone else's dreams? Ed returns to tell the Baptists they're going to make money on the film, but it has to be done his way. We see a collage of Ed's vision for the film, including bad acting, awful stock footage, and terrible dialogue. Bunny is terrific, though. Ed takes Kathy to the premiere in his decently convertible. It begins to rain, and he can't raise the top. They hurry inside, and Chris introduces Ed, who says that this film is for Bella. The movie begins, and Ed whispers to himself, This is the one. This is the one I'll be remembered for. He walks out to the car with Kathy, and she tells him she's so proud of him. He proposes to her and suggests they drive to Las Vegas to be married. He opens the car door, and the accumulated rain spills out. They drive off, and the camera rises again to the dark, mocked-up Hollywood Hills. Wood always sets the mood of Halloween for me, though the film itself has almost no scares and only one scene in connection with the holiday. So it's not the scariness that sets the season. For me, it's the feelings of the year slowly coming to a close and the realization that another year's coming. What will you do with this new year in your life? If we follow the direction I think Burton and Castle have been trying to point us, we're going to do as much as we can with as much enthusiasm and verve as we can muster. Like Ed, we may fall short of our visions. We may never reach them. But as Wells supposedly said, why make someone else's dream? Make your own. I do think that Ed Wood is one of Burton's most personal films, in that he obviously wanted to impart this thought and these feelings, which he's lived by. Talk about someone taking a chance on their talent and coming up big. From in-home animation to blockbusters, it staggers the imagination. But I believe the message he also gets across is that, while untold success is wonderful, of course, the process you pursue is even more wonderful. That's why in the film, Ed never seems to lose enthusiasm. Burton also had a soft spot for the closeness of Ed's friendship and partnership with Bella. He shows repeatedly how Ed and Bella were friends and comrades beyond simply trying to get C-grade pictures done and get paid. As I've noted, it echoes what he felt for Vincent Price, who became close to Burton in his earliest work, then performing with him through one of his breakthroughs, Edward Scissorhands. This theme runs under the entire film, from the tenderness of the relationships, to the humor, to the sadness when a dear friend passes away. It's reflected in Shore's remarkable soundtrack, which is emotive and personal. For a scary season film, it's more than a rom-com scarefest. I think it's a wonderful survey of the character of interesting, striving people. Burton believed in these messages enough that he played with the facts of the film to make the story more resonant. He noted that a few liberties were taken in telling the story of Ed Wood. Did Ed ever really meet Orson Welles? No. But he should have. That scene is perfect. Unfortunately... Life is not always fair in that way, but it puts together a perfect juxtaposition. Two filmmakers in a bar, both fighting for their visions in the creative process. Both were rejected by Hollywood. One authored what is often termed the greatest film ever made. The other authored what is often termed the worst film ever made. But both are in the arena. Dolores Fuller was not as shrewish as shown in the film, and went on to become an accomplished songwriter, producing tunes for Elvis, for one. Bella was not as profane as Landau played him. The embarrassing live TV performance happened before Bella ever met Ed. Ed and Bella didn't meet as in the film, obviously, but were introduced by a friend in common. By the way, how did Ed get to be known as the worst filmmaker ever? His films were almost unknown by the 60s, but the brothers, Harry and Michael Medved, resurrected Ed's reputation in a negative, but so bad it's good way, in their book, The Golden Turkey Awards. The Medveds made personal selections and asked for popular voting in awarding such categories as Worst Performance by a Politician or Most Embarrassing Movie Debut. They selected Plan 9 from Outer Space as the worst film ever, with Ed winning as well for the worst director ever. The rest is history in that Plan 9 and many of Ed's films became cult favorites. And don't get me wrong, Plan 9 is a bad film. I'm not trying to save it here. Except for Bunny's performance, which was incredible. Besides the emotional and kitschy aspects of Ed Wood, I like the Easter eggs in the film. Burton had a few actors who were in Plan 9 also play roles in Ed Wood. The absolute top was Greg Walcott, who portrayed the hero, if there was one, in Plan 9, pilot Jeff Trent, who was square-jawed and a bit leaden. Walcott later became an established actor in film and TV, despite the handicap of Plan 9, for example, appearing in a number of Eastwood films, such as Joe Kidd. In Ed Wood, he portrays the backer who gets cold feet when Vampyra rejects Ed's entreaties to come over and work the crowd. It's fun to see him here, and it's the last role he ever played. Rance Howard, Ron Howard's actor father, has the small but memorable role of the unhygienic meatpacking backer. Vincent Donofrio is wonderful as the face and body of Orson Welles, a tremendous resemblance. He's the face, since the voice was ably provided by Maurice Lamarck, who does the same voice, playing the brain on the cartoon Pinky and the Brain. He does a great Welles. The characters of Chris and Vampyra are so resonant of the silliness of the underbelly of the entertainment scene in the fifties. The amazing Criswell was a forerunner of the amazing Creskin, who may now be better known, but the two alike in dressing in tuxes, appearing on late night talk and variety shows, and making predictions, most of which don't come true. Chris actually did own a coffin, in which he is said to have slept. Vampyra's real name was Malinermi and she was supposedly related to the famous Finnish Olympic multi-gold medalist, Paavo Nermi, though this was a possible show business fiction. She came to L.A. and later New York City from Astoria, Oregon, and made her way modeling and appearing on Broadway. Back in L.A., she hit on a look like Morticia Adams from the New Yorker cartoons of the Adams family. She was hired by KABC to host The Vampire Show, a midnight showing of horror films introduced and commented on by Vampyra. When her show was canceled, she moved into making costume jewelry and antiques. She later unsuccessfully sued Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, for ripping off her character. Finally, I love how Ed Wood and House on Haunted Hill share not only the common ethos of their creators, but strange, scary season facts that link them. For example... Vincent Price's and Orson Welles's fathers went to the same prep school and were in a magic show together. Coincidence? I've already noted how Castle became involved in show business after seeing Bella and Dracula on the stage, talking his way into an associate stage manager position. Castle also leased Welles's theater in Connecticut for use in presenting his early plays. Castle had associate producer and uncrediting writing work on Wells' The Lady from Shanghai. Here's a strange one. Wells and Vampyra supposedly had a child in the 40s which was given up for adoption. How about that? Vincent Price, after success on the stage in England, returned to the U.S. and joined Wells' performance troupe the Mercury Theater, reportedly later put off by the size of Wells' Ego. House on Haunted Hill made ten times its original investment for Castle, while Ed Wood was a three-time loser for Burton and Touchstone. But hey, Disney wasn't worried about their $18 and both films have gone on to become cult classics. I love them both. Well, as this Halloween brings on your reflections on the end of the year and the beginnings of our future... We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you
1: in the future.
0: So the second half of Scary Season, and again, very fortunate to have two great guests uh, because they're both fantastic in terms of their movie knowledge but also their love of scary season. So, again, we've got Jen Kestelut, our best friend, and my daughter, Hallie Jansen, are both here. So welcome to both of you.
1: Well, thanks for having us back. Thanks, David.
0: Yeah, it's great to have you guys on. And uh, like I said last time, it adds a lot. It, this is going to be fun because yeah. this this movie, Ed Wood, I just think this is a great film in general, Um, but it's, it's also just kind of a fun uh, movie to kick off Halloween and the scary season in general. But the thing I like about it is the fact that out of Tim Burton's films, I think this is actually one that's really close to his heart. And it's kind of a, a tender film, you know, uh, because it's got this connection between, you know, Burton and, and Vincent Price and you know, in in the real life, Ed Wood and and Bela Lugosi, and so you know, does that hold up for you guys too? Is that does that make sense for you? What do you think, Hallie?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I think um, especially after watching it with that lens, kind of with that um, thought, and having seen the um, the uh, haunted house on Haunted Hill, I think it's totally totally holds up. You know, um, Tim Burton being a young director. You know, befriends and admires this um, kind of older actor, and especially in horror movies, like totally Vincent Price is known for his horror movies, and so I think it it goes hand in hand. So I think um, it does feel that it's sort of tender and soft because he kind of feels the same way that um, Ed Wood had with um, Lugosi. So Lugosi. Lugosi.
0: Yeah. What what do you think, Jen? I mean, I, I I did really feel like you know this is not a scary film right um it's a biopic right mm-hmm. it's a biography uh not completely accurate but it's a biography i mean what what did you think about that did did you feel that connection as well
2: oh absolutely i thought it was and the relationship between edward and legacy was really it was really really tender mm-hmm. yeah it was
0: it was it, and you you definitely get that feel and vibe you know uh because Ed goes out of his way so much with with Bella, mm-hmm. and um, you could see like how he's saying, you could see how the young Tim Burton felt the same way for Vincent Price, because when Vincent Price was in Edward Scissorhands, he was near the end of his life. Mm-hmm. You know, he was he was really not very mobile, and you know, he was having problems. Yeah. You know, and so you could see how how there was like. A lot of analogies uh, between those two. So, so a, a different subject, and 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 maybe not so tender, but uh, heck of a lot more funny. How about Bill Murray in this film? What did you, Jen's laughing. What, what did you think, Jen?
2: I think Bill Murray plays Bill Murray. Yes, he does, doesn't he? <laughs>
0: Talk about that some more. I just,
2: just Bill's. He's a great actor. <laughs> He can put comic into drama. Yeah. It doesn't even, he does just what he does. It, yeah. It makes it a comedy.
1: It's like his air. Yes. Everything yeah. about it. I, I think for me, it was like, especially in Edward, he has these like really endearing flair for the dramatic pauses. And like, he's just like, so I don't know. It's just like, there's always like a little bit of drama to what's going on in, in, You know, as him as Bunny, I feel like. But, you know, like when he's describing in Mexico. (laughs) Mexico. (laughs) When he's going to get his sex change. And if it weren't for these men, I don't know how I would have survived. And he's just like, you know, it's so dramatic and so cute and endearing. And he just, yeah, I don't know. No one else could have played that better than Bill Murray, I don't think. I agree.
0: Yeah. Have you guys both seen The Real Plan 9? Or have either one of you?
1: No. Yeah, so I saw it a while ago, with, I think we, with you.
0: Maybe so, yeah. yeah. And do you remember Bunny, the actual character?
1: I do remember. Just so, like, particular and, like, yes. I don't know. He was just very, like...
0: Yes. <laughs> I don't know. Yes. A and, little and,
1: high-strung, but...
0: And very officious, mm-hmm. you know, like when he's dismissing the... the uh, the two aliens, he he waves his hand yes. at him, you know, yes, and right. he's very much the imperious ruler. But mm-hmm. uh, so I thought Bill Murray really caught that. And the other yeah. funny thing that I'm I noticed in the picture was they made up Bill Murray's face to be real white, super
1: pale, yeah,
0: right? Yes, and, and um,
2: his
1: white hair. It was white. On yes, his yes, it was white, was white or on God, white, or whatever.
0: So that was I thought that was a a fun part of this movie. Now the other part that I really like was was Johnny Depp's characterization of Ed Wood. And for me, I mean, he does some great acting here, but his voice characterization just carries the whole Ed Wood vibe of positivity, right? I mean, what did you think of that, Jen?
2: Oh, it did. He was very positive. And how, what a young Johnny Depp. Very young. I think he was great in that role. Yeah, and yeah. Yeah, tender and kind. It was.
1: Yeah, I agree. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I just think, and again, with kind of like viewing it through a different lens, because backstory. I we watched this almost, or growing up, we watched this almost every, you know, Halloween or before Halloween. It was a big thing in our family. We we'd watch it, and um. But anyway, watching it kind of with a more scrutinous eye, I feel like um he's just like. No matter what is happening or like what horribleness is going on, he's just like, you know what? We're going to look at it from the sunny side. You know what I mean? Like when, And like when they were talking about the right in the beginning, the critic, you know, about the play, <laughs> everyone's like really bummed out because it's not a great, they didn't get great reviews, but he was like. But the costumes were super, like, I don't know, realistic. realistic. Right. <laughs> That's positive. That's and positive. he's like, you know, just no matter what's going on. And, like, you know, when he's talking to um, his girlfriend alone, he's like, you know, I don't know. But when he's around all of his friends, it just seems like he is super just wanting everyone to do their best and he wants to do his best. And I think it rubs off on everyone else. And yeah. Yeah. And his voice, he's just, it's so, it's like childlike. It's like, yeah, he's got this childlike creative.
0: He, the way he phrases and it's always real, kind of uh high-pitched and excited mm-hmm. right like yes. you know chris
1: yeah you know yeah,
0: and totally. and uh bella you mm-hmm. know he's very he's always enthused mm-hmm. and and you could see why um i guess if you read the book about about ed wood he always believed he was doing great stuff yeah you know and so he had this vibe of he, he didn't think oh my gosh you know i'm, I'm just just a, a D you know, film guy. He really felt like he was doing fantastic work. And I think he tried to get that across to his, to his, to his players, mm, you know? Yeah. So I guess that, that's my question to you guys as well is, you know, one thing I thought about in, in looking at this film was, was that was Tim Burton trying to get across was, you know, do your best, even if your best stinks, <laughs> right? Try and, and, and do your best. What, what do you think, Chad? Uh,
2: I think, I think, That's a good analogy, David. Do your best. And I think, and I was always, I'm kind of amazed too. Not not really amazed, but you've got to be creative. If that didn't work, do this. Mm -hmm. He was constantly... Wood was pretty creative actually. Yeah. Right? When one thing didn't work, he was on to the next film trying to figure out how he was gonna get it produced. I totally he had to be pre- he was pretty creative. Mm-hmm.
1: And the, the resilient. cops show up
0: and he runs. Tells <laughs> yeah. everybody you're We don't have a
1: permit. <laughs> <laughs> run. <laughs> That's pretty creative. Yeah. Right. It <laughs> is. creative and, and like I think resilient too, right? Yeah. Like yes. cause, um but yeah, I think I think so much of it is like having, you know, this passion for something. And and I think it was cool that he didn't necessarily care what people thought. And mm-hmm. he had this, you know, passion for doing, you know, doing his best and um, being in pictures and directing and acting and writing and being just like Orson Welles. And um, it didn't, it didn't, it doesn't really matter, you know, that it was terrible work because what meant... The most to him was that he was doing his best and that. And I think that's also what draw, drew people to him, right? Like all these people that would go above and beyond for right. him to, you know. Yeah,
0: just do crazy stealing stuff. Stealing an
1: octopus or squid from, you know, yeah. the warehouse.
0: Or... Yeah, and then they forget the motor.
1: Yeah. And well, he kind of, his actors, he just, the
2: wrestler, he just, yeah. his little group there.
0: Like, yeah. He, How did he convince all those people to, <laughs> to go along with this bargain basement stuff?
1: Yeah, you know. know. Incredible. Mm-hmm.
0: The other thing I thought really helped make this film and and get that across was uh, Shore's soundtrack. Back in the day when you bought CDs, uh, I bought this soundtrack because I just like this soundtrack so much. And so um, I thought it added a, a ton to this film Interesting that Shore did the, the soundtrack rather than Danny Elfman.
1: Right. Who Tim Burton's You know, Dave. T-
0: Tim Burton's right hand, yeah. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, I thought it was fantastic. I mean, Hallie, what, 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 did you have some favorite moments? or?
1: Oh, my gosh. Well, I just think, well, and again, this goes back to, like, when I was growing up. You know, because you did have that soundtrack, I just distinctly remember, like, Sitting in the living room, getting the costume bin out, getting ready for Halloween. And it's just such a spooky, cool soundtrack. And it's just like, it is what October feels to me. And it's a very interesting soundtrack with like, you know, it's very percussive. There's a lot of like kind of drumming or I don't know what that yeah. thing was. And then the the theremin just brings the whole yeah, the spookiness theremin. Oh to my it. So I think it, it totally... <laughs> It's just it fits the picture. It fits, you know, what it's about making these, you know, horror movies.
0: Yeah, Jim, what do you think? You you heard you you watched Ed Wood recently. What what do you think of that soundtrack?
1: I thought the soundtrack was
2: it
0: was great. Yeah,
2: it completely right. fit the format of the story in the yeah. movie. Yeah, I
0: I think it did. It helped move the story along, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, when when Bella shows up. You know, there's a soundtrack piece for him, mm-hmm. and, and when Ed and Kathy are getting romantically involved, you know, it kind of illustrates that. Mm-hmm. So I think it really it did help support the, the entire movie. So uh, speaking of Bella showing up, mm-hmm. Bella, um, how about Martin Landau wow. playing Bella Lugosi? What do you think, Jen? That was something.
2: Well, he won an Academy Award. Right? Yeah.
0: Incredible. And you like me probably remember him from Mission Impossible. That absolutely, yeah. Oh my gosh. So yeah. how did that guy, <laughs> the master of disguises in Mission Impossible end up winning an Oscar for, for this.
2: You probably thought it was this the role of a lot. It was a role of a lifetime for him. It really he was, was wasn't it? He, he, it was. He was absolutely amazing.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think he was too. Hallie, Hallie what, did, what did you think? You you don't remember him from the Mission Impossible days. Well, I days, sure don't.
1: <laughs> that's okay. I think probably what I know him best for is this role. Um, right. I just think re-watching it and, you know, like I said, with that scrutiny, I just couldn't... Like, he is... So, such a phenomenal actor like um when he's you know in the hospital detoxing um Mm -hmm. what an intense scene that was and you could just yeah you could just feel his pain and anguish and and then also he just I don't know what he is he just emotes Dracula right like his his accent was really incredible right. and like his eyes when they're, you know, watching vampire. <laughs> the the <laughs> I just feel like he, he did such a phenomenal job um, being someone who played Dracula. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. He was Bella. incredible.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, interesting that Martin Landau was really, he had this thing where, you know, mission impossible early in his career. And that was a big TV highlight. And then he had this really long period where he just wasn't, you know in big films and then in this really short time span he was he was nominated for the Oscar 3 times you know mm-hmm. it was incredible he was nominated for Tucker which was a uh, Coppola film uh, he had a Woody Allen film he was nominated for and then finally he wins for this mm-hmm. so it was like and this is near you know the end of his of his life so he really had this this incredible kind of exclamation point at the end of his career good uh lesson for all of us Mm -hmm. so so the funny thing about this was and when i was thinking about these two movies you know i I kept saying how many connections there were between house on haunted hill Mm -hmm. and not so much the movie ed wood but ed wood in in real life and um, some of them just boggled my mind. Some of them I was just like, I, I was doing the research on this, and I, I had to look like three times because I was going like, Wait a that second. can't be right. You know, that's probably an urban myth. And I right. just kept going, no, it's true. So, so you know, of the things that kind of link these two movies together, Hallie, what what did you, what was the most interesting thing to you about that?
1: I just like, well, I guess what I really comes down to me is like, they're both about these movies that are so bad that they're good, right? right? Like right. with Plan 9 and Outer Space and House on Haunted Hill, they right. both kind of feel that way to me. And I also thought it was really interesting, too. I mean, this kind of goes along with it, but um, that Vincent Price like, acted in Orson Welles' theater right in the murky theater you know and so then it's kind of like okay that's a head shaker isn't it yeah and then like this movie is all about orson welles and tim burton and uh loving vincent price so i don't know i just feel like it was all very kind of yeah bound up it's interesting Yeah. yeah
0: What did you think, Jed? Did you did you have any connections between these two that you know you were going like, oh my
2: god? Well, afterwards, when we before we did the pod, Vincent yeah. Price and Tim Burton ended up being good friends. Right. and mm. I'm right. like, what? Of, yeah. Of all the movies, to think, well, this was my favorite and yours, and I think yeah. the connection. Yeah. That yeah, for me, I was like, what? They.
0: It's th- it's crazy. Yeah, so mm-hmm. so I'll 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 jump in on this one with a couple. Well, the thing I could not, like I said, I had to look this up like in three or four different places, and you know, stuff's on the internet; it may or may not be true. Mm-hmm. But apparently, this is really true. In the '40s, Orson Welles and Vampira had oh, a child okay. together.
1: Oh my gosh!
0: <laughs> and I and it was put up for adoption. Wow! And I'm going like. I I didn't know, I I don't know if it was a a boy or a girl, but I'm just going like, if it was a girl, it was like, it had Vampira's waist maybe, and Orson Welles' like (laughs) voice. I I, I was just like, I, I could not, I could not, I could not get that through my head. Yeah. That that was like this weird connection.
1: So many weird, like overlapping, parallel things.
0: But that was like... Holy smokes. Yeah. And then. Um,
1: <laughs> I'm just kind of stunned. I yeah. know. Right.
0: What? That Harrison? was like.
2: Well. Yeah. What? And vampira. And vampira.
0: Mm-hmm. And then um, weird, you know, like Vincent Price's father and Orson Welles's father went to the same prep oh, school. That's right. Yeah. And they were in a magic show together. And I'm just going like, again, like. What
1: are you talking
0: about? That was just incredible to me. So So strange. Yeah, I I just uh, it wasn't like just random, um, you know, to put these two movies together Mm -hmm. in scary season. They're just there's all these little intertwining things between these these two movies. Um, So I thought this was a great Tim Burton film. I I really, really enjoyed it. Do you guys have some other favorite Tim Burton films? Jen, do you have one? Well, for me, The
2: Nightmare Before Christmas, it's it's like my kind of like Halloween favorite.
1: Mm -hmm. I know. Yeah. That's so great. I know. And this is like the hardest question for me ever, because I think Tim Burton is such like, I don't know, such a, my favorite, one of my favorite directors. It's like Tim Burton, Wes Anderson. (laughs) Like if, if anyone who knows me, they know I'm obsessed with anything to having to do with any of those. So I think uh, having to pick a favorite would be really hard. Not to copy Jen, but Nightmare Before Christmas is classic. I mean, hmm. you, my dad could probably tell you I've seen that movie so many times. We had a VHS. I'm sure it's like it was totally worn out from me rewinding and watching it a million times. Cause you know. You would watch it twice a year for Halloween and for Christmas. So. It spans two holidays. It <laughs> spans two holidays. It's incredible. Uh, but I, I do um, love many of his films. I think um, Sweeney Todd was one of my favorites. I loved that um, it was a cool like musical. I also love musicals, and I thought he did a really good job with that. Um, and then, obviously, I don't know, all of his animated films are so great. Corpse Bride... Um Frank and Weenie. I recently rewatched Frank and Weenie, and oh my god, that is such a sweet film. It's so dear. Yeah. It he's is a, he's
0: dear. kind of a Tim Burton's a guy who who has a lot of um action-driven films, right? Mm-hmm. Like Batman and, mm-hmm. and that whole franchise and uh, Planet of the Apes, mm-hmm. that remake. Right. Right. But I think he's he's a very emotional director, too, right? He he really does try to put out things that that are moving, I think, as mm-hmm. well. It's not just action, although the action films make the money, right? But
1: Yeah. I think a lot of his films have characters that that are kind of like misunderstood yeah. or, you know, are different. And um, especially in, in Ed Wood too, all of these people he brought together are all kind of like, you know, they're they're outsiders. They're maybe not normal, quote unquote, normal, whatever people, um, of that time. And, you know, but he, he doesn't care. And, you know, even though they're all a little different, he loves them just the same and brings them all together and makes them feel important. And I think that theme kind of goes along with a lot of Tim Burton's films.
0: I think so. Yeah. So last thoughts on Ed Wood, Jen, you got any final words on this great film?
2: I love this movie. Yeah. Yeah, Are you going to watch it every
1: year now? Well, that's a big
0: commitment. (laughs) (laughs) It is.
1: Maybe that's just a Jansen thing. (laughs) That's a Jansen
0: thing. But, yeah, it's a big commitment. How about you, Allie? Last last thoughts?
1: Last thoughts? Well, I don't know. I just loved it. I thought thought it was cool that they chose to film it in black and white. It felt very, you know... It just felt very intentional. All, all the whole movie was just very intentional.
0: Yeah, I agree. Well, you know what? That wraps up Scary Season on the pod, at least for this year. But uh, for everybody listening, you know, have a great Halloween. Have a great Scary Season. You two guys have a great Halloween. I know you guys enjoy that holiday, so I wish you a happy Halloween.
1: Well, thank you. You know, we will. This is our, this is our jam, isn't it? Happy Halloween.
0: Everybody, thank you for being on and we will talk with you soon. Bye-bye. You can find us on the web and social media. We're at those wonderful people on Instagram and at films in the dark on Twitter. Our website is those wonderful where we post pod episode transcripts and you can leave your questions and comments. Our music is by Martin Schellikens, Alex Zavesa, and Alex Chernick. I'm David Jansen. Talk with you soon. And as always, I'll leave the last word to Mr. Scorsese.
2: What are the essentials to you? What makes cinema? I think what makes cinema to me, uh,
0: I think ultimately it's something that for some reason stays with you uh, so that a few years later you could watch it again, or 10 years later you watch it again and it's different. In other words, there's more to learn Mm -hmm. about yourself or about life. Mm -hmm.